Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Viren Gayapasad about major depressive disorders from a clinical psychologist perspective. Viren Gayapasad, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about major depressive disorders from a clinical psychologist perspective. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Oliver. Uh, yeah, it's always our pleasure. I mean, uh, as I told you, we, we, we took a slight break in the show, but we're so glad, you know, I'm so glad to be doing it again. And um, I think we, we met on LinkedIn, you know, I just sent you a message. So you were quite active on LinkedIn. So I asked you the question as well. Is, uh, you know, are you quite active on LinkedIn? Um, is that your social media of choice? Um, so professionally, or both personally and professionally, I've been very, very quiet, um, more so professionally. Uh, the professional stuff actually started literally maybe two and a half weeks ago. Oh, wow. And that was to actually start being more active and almost putting yourself more out there. Um, I was warned about not being as active. <laughs> so here am I taking chances. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious. So, I mean, like, did that come from like a, like a supervision or a coaching kind of session? Or uh, how did you decide actually you're going to like become more? involved in social media because i find with healthcare practitioners there's school two schools of thought i mean some that don't even have profiles and then mm. others that or maybe three because others are, are like more voyeurs and like they check it out happening but they obviously don't yeah. say anything <laughs> and then the other ones that are very active i know a few of those therapists and they you know very active in all of the platforms and um, it's almost like they show that personal side to them which you know is pretty i, don't, I think it's it's unlike you know very many healthcare practitioners, you know, you don't want to show that personal side. So how did that come about? So I, I think I've been struggling with exactly that. It's this thing of, do you put yourself out there? There's all of these risks that's involved, you know, it's you're almost opening yourself up to anything and everything. And I think the more I'm on social media, <clears throat> just browsing, like you mentioned, the more you see all of these um, unwarranted sort of attacks that come on and you dare say the wrong word and everything goes up in flames. Um, so actually, I, I work with an adolescent population, um, not primarily, but mostly. And so I think it's it comes a lot from them, this push of, oh, are you on social media? Have you seen this? Have you done that? And I almost feel like if I have to keep up and continue to understand what's going on, I've got to be a little bit more involved in this. <laughs> um, and then I think the final push came actually from an intern group that I was supervising last year. And there were these advocates, <laughs> in my mind, advocates for social media. Like, no, you know, you've got to, you're going to get to a lot more people. You know, you like what you do and you want to make this difference. You want to reach as many people as you want. And this is the way that you can do it. You, you can't put ads in newspapers anymore. <laughs> So that's, that that's exactly what Yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting, though, because I think too much, you know, obviously is, is bad, but um, I, really, I really embrace the fact that I think healthcare practitioners are doing that more. And I think for me, why, why I, I do embrace it is because I think the world needs more perspectives from specialists rather than, <laughs> because anyone can give advice on nutrition and this and that. 
and and you know dare I say even mental health issues but unless you haven't unless you've trained in that you know it's so scary to go and follow like you know the advice of someone that's not even trained on this stuff so I, I really like the fact that healthcare practitioners are doing it because at least we get you know like a, a better perspective on it and I think that's great most definitely. I think it can be quite dangerous, you know, just because you're popular on social media doesn't necessarily mean that you are adequately trained to give those opinions or, or to help someone get through something. Mm. So it, it can be quite a dangerous sort of platform. Mm. So let's get into the topic. We're talking about major depressive de- episodes. And I, I think we've we've covered on the show, you know, depression and, and other clinical you know areas but when we started speaking and we're trying to finalize you know uh, um you know a topic or you know uh, yeah a topic for the show i think this one caught my eye and i think just in terms of introducing you i think what really caught my eye in terms of your skill set as well is that you know you seem to have the private practice background you have the psychiatric hospital background and the academic aspects you know the lecturing so I'm, I'm really interested to unpack the topic for you know around this and also from a clinical psychologist perspective so um, maybe first tell us you know what exactly is a major depressive disorder um so the major depressive disorders generally when when we say major depressive disorders it almost creates this impression of it's something huge, it's something that's major. And people almost then start searching for a minor depressive disorder. Um, so I'm not sure why that label came around, why it had to be major. Um, but essentially what it means is that the main component or the main thing that dominates your, your clinical picture is that of a mood episode, and more specifically, this low mood. So within the mood cluster symptoms, there's anxiety and there's the hypomanic and manic episodes. But specifically with the depressive episode, it it essentially speaks to a low mood. So that feeling of being very, very sad, very, very down, um, to some degree depressed. But it's often confused with, you know, what if I'm having a normal day and I'm just feeling a little bit sad? Is that also depression? And what makes it a clinical diagnosis or more severe is that it starts impacting on your functioning. So the way that you're feeling, the way that you're thinking, your ability to almost function in your everyday life. So once we see that it starts impacting there, then we start classifying it more diagnostically or more clinically. Mm. The other thing I learned from, you know, the, the many episodes we've done so far is that it has to be for a certain time, right? It can't be like I'm feeling down today and then I'll probably have major depressive disorder. It has to be like for two weeks or something. Is there a time period with it? So with any mental illness, there's always a very strict criteria. So the, the, the manual that we use for diagnoses, um, the DSM. So according to the DSM, when you're making these diagnoses, every single disorder and every single mental illness has a specific set of criteria. So with major depressive episode or major depressive disorder, the time period is two weeks. So you've got to have these symptoms for at least two weeks. And they're also very specific where they say you've got to meet at least five or more of a whole list of symptoms. So things like your low mood, um, feelings of irritability, um, 
feeling like a loss of pleasure in things that you used to enjoy doing. Um, it taps into things like sleep disturbances. So sleeping a lot more than usual, sleeping a lot less than usual, things like weight gain. Have you been picking up a lot of weight, lost a lot of weight? Um, and then once again, all of these things are very specific. So it's not a thing of, oh, I lost weight today, I must be depressed. Um, it speaks to almost a disruption from your normal pattern of being. So if you're generally 50 kilos and then suddenly in the next two weeks you're down to like 30, 35 kilos, it's a significant change from what you've been experiencing. So in those sort of regards, we look for big changes, things that are not normal in your everyday life. Mm. Okay. I think, you know, the, the, the next question I had was around symptoms, but I think you covered that slightly <laughs> now. Is, are those the symptoms uh, that you mentioned? Yeah, so with, with symptoms, it's usually a depressed mood okay. and a loss of pleasure or a loss of pleasure in activities. So things that you used to really enjoy doing or were really motivated to do, you suddenly don't have a level of excitement anymore. Mm. Um, so part of those five symptoms are things like um, a decrease in either decrease or increase in, in your sleep patterns, so sleeping a lot more or a lot less, um, changes in your appetite, um, poor concentration, so an inability to concentrate or pay attention, um, things like suicidal ideation, so thoughts of suicide, um, wanting to hurt yourself or to kill yourself, um, I'm just trying to think of the non-clinical terms. So the clinical mm -hmm. terms are promotes agitation and retardation. Um, basically, what that means is your motor, your body activity. Like you often find with people that are depressed, they're very slowed. So you'd almost see it in their body posture. It's very slowed and uh, not as active. Mm. And uh, so, Viren, do, do you find, I mean, I, I, I think... Uh, I'm curious to know, like, are there triggers? I mean, obviously, you know, they have this, like, top five really stressful events in life, you know, like things like divorce or you lost your job or, you know, you lost a loved one. Do you find there's, like, normally a trigger before that happens? I mean, there must be, like, a point where someone realizes, actually, like, this isn't, you know, like, I can't deal with this anymore or something like that. Do you find something like that happens? Almost always. Okay. Um, and sometimes it's very difficult to put your finger on this trigger, but people have an idea of around this time it got a little bit worse, or after this I noticed things were not the same. And usually what happens is it can be one sort of big event, so things like a divorce or a big move or a big change in lifestyle. Um, but more often than not, it's usually an accumulation of little things. So things that we were able to manage and we feel like we could deal with it and we start carrying these things. So it's almost like you're carrying this backpack of things and mm -hmm. every little thing you put in it may be insignificant. But over time, the littlest new thing can be too much for you to bear. And often people are sitting there wondering, but it was such a small thing and I just blew my top off. Or it was such a small thing and now I, I don't know what's changed with me. And they don't realize that they've been carrying so much for all this time. Okay. I, I like how you put that. Um, so sometimes I used to have issues with my 
back. So you used to go to a physio. And it would be the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, the simplest thing. And then, you know, your, your back is kind of messed up. And I can kind of guess that. I was actually thinking the opposite, though. I thought it would be something like life-changing and then that happens. But I like how you put that. It's almost like a tap that's dripping. And it's like just the last drop is, you know, the overflow. Um, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I think people almost take for granted how much of stuff we go through in our lives. Just everyday things, everyday stresses. And literally all of those things just start building and building and building. Hmm. So I, I like how you put it. It's, it's that tap that's just continuously leaking without fail. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think more so because, you know, I want to put it in this, in this, like a local context as well and local, I mean, South Africa. And I mean, I think in South Africa, I mean, it's quite stressful, you know, on most days, you know, I think with various things that are happening. And I think I wonder how much of that, you know, people, like you said, you know, you don't realize, you know, what's happening. And, I, you know, when I used to like, like driving as an example, you know, you, you always find this I wouldn't say road rage, but, you know, very close to it. But people are almost like very intolerant, you know, of stuff. And I just wonder, you know, how much of that is just related to everything just going on. But it, because it can't be for that moment. You know, it was just, you know, it just seemed like, like almost like a over-exaggeration, you know, in that moment. Yes. Okay. You're, you're almost looking for a justification for road rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would be, I would be in da- dangerous territory if I did that. But yeah, <laughs> close. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I just think that the point though is, I mean, like between work, I do want to ask you the COVID question as well. I don't think we put that in a brief, but it was my fam- favorite question to ask practitioners in terms of how they experienced that. You know, I've had like really interesting res- you know, responses on how practitioners have seen the difference, you know, around COVID. But, you know, things like, you know, like people at that moment, you just went through the process, you put on your mask, you, you know, like you had, you know, you couldn't go to work, sometimes you work remotely, whatever. Um, and they kind of like just dealt with it. And then I, I just feel like, you know, it was like, like that tap pot, you know, it was just dripping all the time. Mm-hmm. Have you found anything that came from COVID that uh, has any like bearing on the depressive episodes? A lot, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so to some degree, I think it impacts both the clients, patients, as well as the practitioners, um, almost to the same degree. We've got to act like everything is fine and we can handle it and we've known COVID and we're just going to put on masks and carry on with work. What actually happens beneath that is chaos. But we've got to almost push through because you've got to be there for everyone. You've got to make sure that everything is okay. And if you're not sure, how do you assure the patient or the client that things are okay? So from a practitioner's point of view, I think really, really stressful. As much as it's one more thing that we have to deal with in addition to our chaotic lifestyle, like that tap, you know, each and everything, each and every drop. COVID, I think, was almost opening that tap halfway now. So with COVID, there's so much of adjustments, so much of things that we've had to change. Um, a simple thing like therapy is usually face-to-face. You know, it's a thing that's very personal, very vulnerable, um, very intimate. And suddenly now to change that to 
we still need to provide these services, but how do we do it without being in front of you? And yes, we could start doing telephonic sessions. We started doing online sessions. We started running online groups as well. And as beneficial as it is, there's also that thing of weighing your options between how much harm does it do? If I'm sitting, um, and I've actually had this where I was sitting with a patient online, and suddenly the suicidal thoughts and so the, his feelings were wanting to hurt um, himself started coming out a lot more strongly. In person, it's a lot easier to manage that situation. When you're online and you just literally have the screen between you, it becomes so difficult to do and becomes so difficult to manage. And yes, we have to manage it and, and be okay with it. But I think that's the stress that it adds, let alone the illness, but what we've had to change around the illness to almost accommodate therapy. Mm. So from there, it's stressful. <laughs> No, no, sorry, go for it. Yeah, so, so there's quite stressful um, from the patient's perspective as well. I think COVID with loss of jobs, with now everybody being at home at the same time, a lot more conflict, um, family conflict that used to be almost settled by people going to work and coming back and, you know, having time away from family helped a little bit with COVID, everyone together, everybody cooped up in the same room, trying to do things, being frustrated. It, it pays so much of grief to people and, and it brings about so much of conflict in itself. Mm. And then you have something else like the illness itself. What happens if I do get COVID? Um, and then from healthcare practitioners or from my side specifically, it's, is this paranoia? Is this person just being overly paranoid? Is it like an OCD type of thing? Um, have they really experienced this? And we honestly don't know, and it makes things so much more unclear. Mm, I like that. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can I can kind of picture it, and and I can kind of remember, you know, that early days of you know COVID and and how it worked, and and that's why also, I mean, the whole remote working thing. I don't know. I'm a still, still a firm believer that you know you want to go somewhere, do your stuff, come back, and then you know almost like that yeah. separation of stuff. But you know when you're working in the same room and you're sleeping in that room, and you know it's it's just difficult, you know, from a mindset point of view to switch out, switch back in, depending on what you're doing as well. You know, I think if you're working on yeah. your own stuff, it's okay. But if you're doing like what you're doing, you know, like like very like you know hectic, you know, sessions of therapy. You know, I, I don't think you can just like, you know, turn on and turn off. It's not, I don't think that's how the human brain works. Um, yeah. But we've, we've noticed as well that in a lot of the other job spaces or professions as well, that exactly what you mentioned, you know, the bedroom or the lounge now becomes an office as well. And that blurring of what is my personal space, what is my professional space? And if your mind can't switch between the two and you can't actively separate it, you're literally sitting at work at eight o'clock in the night mm. or you're having supper at your work, work desk. Mm. And with that, people get a lot more prone to burning out because now these hours are stretched, it's blurred. A simple thing like driving back from work, 
as much as it may seem mundane, it may seem a little bit stressful sometimes with road rage. But I think just that break or that active physical separation from I'm now moving away, I'm now seeing something different, I'm in a different setting, I'm actively moving, I'm walking, there's blood circulation. I think all of those little things we take for granted, just seeing outside after all. Yeah, definitely. And and there's something about that change in space, change in environment, you know, that, you know, the, yeah, that really does something, you know, for you. And I think even for me, I mean, driving is almost like a, it's like a meditative thing sometimes, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you go through this thought pattern and especially long distance, you know, I don't know if yeah. you find the same, you know, it's like your mind just wanders in its own way, you know, while it's obviously yeah. going on autopilot, you know, while you hopefully mm-hmm. driving the car fine. But uh, it's still, you know, it's still doing its thing, which I find really amazing. You know, it's like often when you you say, "I've got to turn on the radio," and it's been like half an hour later. You know that mm. that type of moment. So yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Mm. Um, so we yeah. So I, I think we, so we covered the symptoms, and I'm interested on the next one, which is you know where we talk about typical therapy and. Have you found that, like, as you answer, you know, like, as you go through and like, tell us about that, have you found a difference from a, like, a psychiatric hospital setting versus a private practice setting in terms of how the typical therapy would work? Um, yes. My my response is maybe a little bit biased though, because the psychiatric hospital that I work in is a tertiary hospital. So generally what that means is that the patients would go through their doctors, their clinics, their public hospitals first and try to be stabilized. When that fails or they're unable to be stabilized, then it's almost like they qualify to come onto us. So in that sense, we're getting them at quite a severe phase Mm. Um, versus in private practice which is your extreme opposite. It's the ones that don't really even need to go to hospitals. It's the ones that are starting to feel a little bit depressed or a lot of the patients that I see anyways. It's the starting phases um, or they're managing, but not too well. Um, But then just in terms of actual therapy, I like to always separate it into the content of therapy and then the process of therapy. So the content essentially is the things that all of these details that people like to fill in of why they're there. So this happened and this happened and that happened. And then the process almost speaks to the themes of what's been happening. So there's a theme of rejection. There's a theme of a poor self-image. There's a theme of feeling worthless. So it doesn't matter what trigger led to that theme it leads you the same feeling. So in these two contexts, in private and in the hospital, the details are always different. But the process of, I started this way, I was fine, I started feeling a lot worse, and it progressed to this, is almost the same. It's almost quite similar. Um, In terms of actual therapy, that's very, very unique. So we'd operate from the same framework, depending if you're working from a CBT perspective, from psychodynamic, from a systems perspective. Um, That would be similar. But for me personally, 
each and every patient is very, very different. And I think I enjoy working with that because it almost becomes this investigation. It becomes like this puzzle that you sit there with the patient trying to figure out and trying to work through. And then, you know, these little pieces fit together and it's like, oh, wow, look at that. And then we, we can now add to that or we leave that and go to something else. So with therapy, it's very individualistic. It's very specific to that person. Hmm. Uh, I mean, if we, if we even take identical twins, they can look exactly the same, dress exactly the same, grow up in the exact same house, um, go to the same schools, whatever it may be. But they can have such unique and different lives. They can witness the exact same thing. They can witness a car accident. And one will just be like, oh, okay, let's get on with my day. And the other could be completely debilitated for months on end. And I think for me, that's what's important, like looking at those finer details. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I like that. And, and I think, I mean, that's the thing I learned as well. It's always individual based. Mm -hmm. um, but with the modalities of therapy, is a like, um, I know this is probably a very naive question as well, but um, you know, like there's obviously not one modality that fits best for, you know, like major mm -hmm. depressive disorders. I mean, you could take any one of those modalities and there's a way that you would help the client or the patient based on their individual needs. At that time, yeah. does that summarize it? Exactly that. Um, and then to add another component to that is it depends with what modality makes sense and what modality you're comfortable working from. So as much as I can know about, for example, a CBT perspective, if I don't believe or see things within that sort of lens, if I'm just forcing it because the patient wants me to use a CBT perspective. Yes, we can do that. We can talk about these things, but I don't think I'll get to the same depth and we'll get to the same essence as compared to someone that's actually trained in CBT, that's excited about it, that wants to do it, that, that is quite eager and quite keen about it. So we can be trained in everything. And I think that's what a lot of these universities do is they'll pick one or two or three frameworks and you'll get basic training into it. I think within your internship and comserve going forward, it, did, it then sort of lies on you to look at the ones that make sense to you, look at the ones that resonate with you. And that's the ones that you almost pursue a lot more. Mm. Okay, that, that actually makes sense. I think you probably are one of the few people that have touched on that. And I think, you know, in, in the other show, you know, where we cover, you know, becoming a clinical psychologist, I think it's probably worth mentioning that as well, is that each one of the universities has their own like modalities that they normally, you know, go down. Like I know Fitz is, you know, UJ is very psychodynamic, you know, like they might be different in other universities. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting way. And, and I suppose the other thing that you're answering for us is that it doesn't mean that if one therapist is using BW, BWRT and the other one is using CBT or, you know, or the other one is using psychodynamic, you know, that it's, it's not going to help. It's just a different way of getting to the same result. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Most hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I like that. So it also depends quite a lot on the patient and what they're comfortable with. So are they comfortable involving an entire family in the session? Are they comfortable with a more 
brief solution focused, like I want to see results within one to three sessions? Or is it a process that they want to go through? You know, I want to uncover these things. I want to know what's going on. So depending on what they're looking for as well, um, you've got to find a fit between patient and therapist. Okay. Which is the modality that has the family in there? Uh, the, the systems, the ecosystemic perspective. Oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. I don't think I've come across that one before. Uh, we've done hypnotherapy, you know, which is psychodynamic, um, CBT, in a BWRT. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, hopefully you find a perspective on that, which will be very interesting. Um, I found the other one, which was very interesting as well, the intergenerational one, you know, like generational, you know, like this therapist that mm. specialize in that. I thought that was very interesting because, uh, yeah, how that affects you as well, which is, yeah, pretty cool. We didn't mention- I think you may find a bit of that in the systemic theory as well. So they literally look at systems. So the very, very briefly and very, very quickly, um, systems theory looks at the individual within the larger context. So they say that you don't exist by yourself. You're influenced by partners and family and society and cultures. So even things like intergenerational patterns, things that my grandfathers and grandmothers did, will sort of filter down same beliefs, same perspectives, same dysfunctional ways of doing things. <laughs> mm, that is true. I mean, uh, it's funny how that works, eh? that circle. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's why it's amazing speaking to therapists, you know, who can help us unblock that cycle of like how you do things. You know, like people that have issues with money seem to always have issues with money. You know, people that have issues with relationships always seem to have and it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing about how you break that cycle. But by no means, yeah, but by no means a, an easy process, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy to break that cycle, especially if you're in a system. Yeah, it's, I like to explain it as if you're right-handed your entire life and then suddenly you have to use your left hand. It's weird and it's awkward and it's clumsy and it takes a lot of practice. It's not something that happens quickly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, obviously off topic, but very, very interesting for me in terms of like life and stuff like that, because, you know, you do want to, you do want to break the mold sometimes, but you know, like if you're in the system, that's always done it like that. Like there's some people, like I never, I, like, I, I, I spent my time in corporate, but, uh, you know, I never, you know, I would do it in stints, but, I, you know, like, I already admire people that could be in corporate for like 30 years or 40 years, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, I just, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Eh? I mean, you know, the, the politics, the longevity of it, obviously there's, you know, some factors around that uh, I need to probably deal with, but I just couldn't do it, you know, and there's people that do it, you know, it's amazing. Um, you know, how, you, how they do that. Um, I'm not sure this is a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's good that there is loyalty and this sustainability um, and stability, or that this is a thing of you're just stuck in this pattern or you're stuck in your comfort zone. So I think there's also quite a big debate between those two. Yeah. We can, we can talk about it in another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think you articulated it perfectly. You know, like uh, what I was thinking is like it would be easy enough to accept the status quo and say, 
actually that's how it was before and that's what you you know you're gonna do um mm. and you know there's so many movies i mean especially the kid movies like i'm thinking about moana right now and you know mm. it's about breaking that mold and also yeah. realizing that part of that was how it was supposed to be anyway um yeah i mean like uh, d- definitely another episode I, I think if we could cover almost like the that systematic or the, the systems and the intergenerational mm-hmm. stuff i find that absolutely fascinating um you know i speak to my mom and i was like why, why did you do it like that she's like oh we didn't know any better so we just did it and i'm like yeah that's that's interesting but why didn't you like question that because obviously that wasn't normal so but i think that links quite nicely also to this whole thing of mental illness. Um, whether it's a depressive disorder, whether it's any mental illness, I think that exact same pattern that you're talking about, you know, we did it because it was always done or that intergenerational pattern, or we do it because it's what's expected of us. I think that filters in so nicely also with a depressive disorder or any mental illness in that sometimes you're silenced because we don't talk about it mm. or if you do talk about it it means that you're weak you're not this you're not that or it's not part of our family to talk about emotions or we don't do those certain things so i, I think once again this thing of content and process the reasons behind doing it can differ or this religion or culture or family but what it causes that process is you're silenced and you've got to go with the flow whether you like it, whether you don't like it, you've just got to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could, um, yeah, I definitely see that as another episode. I mean, I would love to unpack that. Um, but we didn't mention anxiety so far. And is there, you know, when I did the, some of the research for the, you know, for the topic, anxiety seems to be linked for depression or, you know, depressive disorders. Is there any link? around there do you find or, or did we cover it by virtue of the fact that we spoke about the tap and that creates the anxiety and then obviously it results in the you know in something more yeah i think the with anxiety what the differentiating factor there is anxiety is specifically more a worry so a worry about a future event things that have not happened that may happen that may not happen and then we tend to catastrophize that. So we almost look at these worst case scenarios. What happens if this happens? Or it's going to be in this specific way. Um, where I see the link between the two is that we start having these negative patterns, thought patterns. So I've always failed at this. I'm not good enough. I'm hopeless at this. I can't do this. And then the anxiety fuels that. So I have a test coming up. I've never done well. I'm useless. They told me I'm this, I'm that. And then the anxiety kicks in with that. I know I'm not going to do it. Why Why try if I'm going to fail anyway? And then with the anxiety symptoms, it creates all of these bodily um, symptoms. So things like your increased heart rate, this feeling lightheaded, feeling like your palms are all sweaty, feeling like there's a lump in your throat. And that can sometimes reinforce that idea of, can you see how weak I am? Can you see how not good enough I am? Anybody else in my situation would have been fine. Why am I acting like this? 
And then that's where it almost fades into the depression, where I am not good enough. I am weak. I am useless. Okay. I think I think that makes sense for me. Um, the you know the other thing when we were discussing an agenda for the show, you mentioned um, the stigmas you know associated with like having mm. a major depressive disorder, and I find that one quite interesting as well. And and I think you you specifically said you know can we discuss it you know from a South African <laughs> context as well? And I was like curious yeah. you know like why you said that, and I'm even more curious now. Can you can you tell us? I mean, does this come up very strongly in terms of? I mean, I, I just know growing up. I mean, not that we heard it often, but like you know, my cousins lived in Pierre Maritzburg, and like we figured out like Pierre Maritzburg has like a psychiatric hospital, and it was always like a thing. You know, you like you know, obviously kids being kids, but do you find that there's a huge stigma? With I think you can even broaden it to say mental health. I mean, I think there is there a stigma around it. Yes, most definitely. And it, it features so overtly and so in your face. And I think this is also another reason why I've decided to push onto social media, um, go out of my comfort zones. Um, it's essentially because there's so much of misinformation and, and so much of um, this murkiness around mental illness. And for some reason, it feels like the strongest voices that come across are the ones that are totally incorrect on some level, um, the ones that are actually causing more harm. And because these voices are louder, that's what people tend to believe. So within private practice, within the psychiatric hospital, the second that you mentioned psychologists, and I get this feedback so often, you know, I don't want to tell my family that I'm seeing a psychologist, or I don't want to tell my family that I'm taking medication at a hospital because psychology means something is wrong or I'm not right in the head or I'm off my head. And I like that you mentioned you know, as kids, you would almost hear these things. And that's exactly where it starts from. It's these silly things that have been said that have been ingrained in us um, where we tease someone or be teased, oh, you're mad, or stop acting like you're mad, or you're crazy. And those little things, I don't think we realize the impact that it has. We then go through our life thinking that we must not be these things. If I do start feeling depressed, it's a mental illness. Mental illness means something is wrong with me, I'm crazy, I must be in a loony bin. And it's those things that that hinder therapy because now I'm more reluctant to seek help. Or if I seek help, it means that I'm acknowledging that I'm not okay or that something is wrong with me or I'm weaker in some sense. Mm. And um, Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I see, you know, the systems coming back as well is because if you're part of the system and, and, and I think the one thing I do want to say and, uh, you know, hopefully you can collaborate that is, I think we like so, so hard on kids, you know, like in, in terms of expectation and stuff like that. But when you become an adult, which is 21, I think, um, it's mm -hmm. almost like you magically have this thing figured out now. Like when we look at adults, you know, even from a family context, it's like, okay, they know better. 
you know, whereas yeah. they might not have any basis for knowing better. So when you step, you know, when you step out of that mold, when you step out of that system, then it seems like you being weird. You know, if you want to go to see a psychologist to be better, you know, then it's like you being weird, you know, and, and I find that. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, most definitely. Um, and I agree, I agree with you 100%. It's this thing of you're in this family and we have this belief that the elders will know best. And whatever they say, you are meant to follow blind. And I'm not saying that they don't know anything. Neither am I saying that they know everything. What I am saying is that it's healthy and it's good to be in that mindset of questioning. Why do we do what we do? And if I look back at my previous generations, so my parents, my grandparents, it was never a thing of you're allowed to question because that has its own implications. You're being disrespectful or you're not being an obedient or a good child. And so what you're meant to do is blindly follow. And there's these silly things where even for myself, I found myself questioning. So I'd ask my parents, you know, why do we do certain things? Or religiously, you know, why do we do this prayer? Why do we do this? And they don't know. And so when I asked my gran, she's a little bit more open-minded um, as compared to her generation. And so she'd tell me, I don't know. My parents and my grandparents did it, so we just did it that way. <laughs> and you realize with everything that we do, we start almost following this, this little lane that, that our families have created. Whether it's correct or incorrect, doesn't really make a difference. All that's important for, for this family is you follow it because you will not break tradition. Mm, yeah. Sounds similar to my grand, actually. <laughs> In terms of that, I was always amazed at, at some of her thinking. But um, yeah, I, I have this theory, or not theory, but a belief in life that I'm, I'm willing to follow anyone's advice as long as they've done it or they can see through it. You know, but if you don't know the context, I mean, it's like weird trying to follow the advice of someone who's never, ever done it. I mean, it's, you know, and I think that's my view of elders as well, you know, with the utmost amount of respect. But, you know, if you've never done it, you know, how are you going to, you know, uh, in some way anyway, or can think through it or, you know, done research on a topic or whatever that is, you know, but it's, um, yeah. I think because anyone can offer advice, but like, you know, you get, like you said, with social media now, you got everyone giving advice about everything. But no, normally, they haven't even done it themselves. So it depends on how fancy your content looks. That's <laughs> <the> <laughs> yeah, I know. Agreed. Um, in terms of support, you, you know, we started out with the discussion around. Obviously, at some point, there's a you know that that cut off, and someone now is on you know has a major depressive disorder. Is there anything? Mm -hmm. And and I probably want to ask this in two ways. One is, as loved ones, can we see that happening? Like, you know, is there like a like a, a way that we do that? And secondly, once the person is you know struggling with a major depressive disorder, how do we support them better? Okay, um, is the first question more about how do we see this? Yeah, how can we support them pre, you know, like that, and you know, like how do we support them? maybe post that as well. And maybe it's the same thing. I'm just thinking in my mind, you know, like it's almost like someone is going towards a cliff right now 
obviously there yeah. must be something that we can do as as loved ones to say you know something doesn't seem right you know can we can we make an appointment to, with Virian? you know i heard him on this podcast previously and i think you know he probably can help you before you get to the tertiary hospital aspect you know mm. is there is there anything around that yeah i i, I think all of what we've been speaking about links in to this you know as much as it it was funny hearing these stories of the nonsense that we've been through and the stereotypes and, and what we've been forced into believing it actually plays such vital roles in then the supportive aspect of it so as much as those things can be used as detrimental um, sort of factors if we can look at those and change those exact things it can be supportive so things like within your family system or as parents as partners as friends as children of try not to dictate so if you can see that you know something looks a bit different you know you're not usually this quiet or you're not usually this reserved is everything okay a simple check in so what i found is sometimes it gets a bit irritating for people when you're feeling a certain way and then someone dictates to you and tells you why are you why are you angry and in your mind you think i'm not angry i'm just getting a little bit frustrated no but you're angry i can see that you're angry tell me why you're angry and so almost try to resist that urge of preempting um a better way to do or a better way to support is leave it more open ended just a simple check in hey how was your day oh hey I've, i've noticed you've been a little bit different is everything okay um almost a more supportive stance um what i always like to to tell families is create a space first so create a space that feels safe that allows the person to be vulnerable so you're not going to stand in the middle of the mall and say oh tell me why you're depressed you know it's almost a thing of you start slowly and this person already has so much to deal with or may possibly be dealing with a lot so create the space that's safe that's quiet that's not intrusive um where if someone can be vulnerable and open up it's not left just erupting and you're going to then leave them after 5 minutes to get to work um so things like a simple check in um noticing you know is any differentness in your behavior um are you doing anything that's that's sending red flags that's making me worried um have you stopped going to work have you stopped performing at school um things like uh, we we have and i think this goes back to these labels and stereotypes that we were talking about we often have this urge to say i'm just thinking that when when little boys fall down and we're so quick to say oh don't cry you're a big boy and as you know we don't really give that much thought because it's what everybody says but what you're then implying is that if you're crying it means you're not a good boy or you're not a big boy or you're not a strong boy mm. and just the way that we phrase things sometimes we need to just stop and listen to ourselves you know what are we implying it's not okay to be not okay mm. um and then just from there you know find out what the person needs not everybody needs 
solutions um, to problems. And I often, I often see interns jumping, uh, the interns that I supervise, they're always in this rush to, oh, the patient did this, and how do I fix this? Or what do I do to fix? And I sit there asking them, does the patient want you to fix this? Or what do they want from you? And sometimes what we've found is that it's just, I just need someone to be there. I don't need the right answers. I don't need everything to work out. I just need to know that someone's in my corner. Someone's there for me. Someone can listen to me. We can stay in this confused together. Um, and then just educate yourself as well. So if you don't know what this person is going through, you know, if you've been um, to the psychologist and they're like, okay, this is a depressive disorder or there's just a lot of stress going on or there's trauma that's happening, we try to, to fall back on lay knowledge, on things that we've heard in the media, seen on TV, heard from friends, which may not be correct. So try to get more credible sources of information. If your loved one is going through this depressive phase, Read up, not on Wikipedia, but read up more credible sites on what is depression, what happens to this person, what goes on. And if you can understand or somewhat understand, it makes it a lot easier to assess. Mm, I love that. Um, yeah, I like how you said that as well in terms of, you know, how we can support um, and how, yeah, and, and I think also being like open for the conversation. And I think, um, and I think that's also the other reason we're doing the show as is to be able to get some of these terms more mainstream, you know, so when when the person is going through that, because I find, you know, when we, whenever we go to healthcare practitioners, we think, you know, like, they know everything, like, like a doctor, like knows everything that's happening in your body. And it's almost impossible to know, based on the fact that everyone is an individual. So, I mean, they can point us in the right direction, but you need to know as well. And I think, and and the other term is, you know, Google is not your friend because I mean, unless, unless, it's, unless you know what to look for, how do you, what do you go and put into Google? Like, like if you never knew what a major depressive disorder is, you know, once you do know that and you put it into Google, you're going to get some cool results. But if you don't know that, what do you search for? And that's what I find, you know, with healthcare practitioners and you know, that's the amazing part is that they have all of this knowledge. It's like, how do we harness that in a way? And, but it's not ever going to replace, you know, booking an appointment with Biren. I mean, that's never ever, but at least you know what to look for and you know, you know, like what it could be. And then you can make the booking and you can ask for more information or whatever that is, or at least know a little bit more. Um, so I'm really, really, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad to have you on board, you know, talking about that and stuff like that. Um, in terms of a typical therapy process, and I know you said everything is individual, but is there a certain way that you work with patients or well, patients normally go through, you know, therapy for a major depressive disorder? And typically what I'm look, what I'm, you know, what I'm asking is like, you know, is it a two month process? Is it a six month process? Is it like five year process? You know, how does it typically work? Uh, just so that someone knows that, you know, if a loved one is going through that and they did start up the therapeutic process, you know, how, how long would that take? And I know, again, it's based on each person. So huge disclaimers. 
the the answer to that is it a two session five month ten year the answer is yes okay <laughs> <laughs> could be anyway so yeah so usually how how i personally work is i use the first session or first two sessions to get an idea of what exactly is going on so i've never met you before you never met me before literally you can walk through that door with anything under the sun i have no idea so usually in the first session i always like to just sit down and figure out what's going on what are we here for um are we on the same page in terms of what we see as problematic what do we both want to change so what are you here for and what do i think i can help you with and then a way forward so this is how we're going to get there this is the process um would you like to change anything in this process would you like to do anything different um and then the end goals so how will i know that therapy's been progressing or are we actually going backwards um and then part of that first session is also an assessment of is this an emergency so a patient or a client that walks in that is telling me i want to kill myself i can't handle it anymore versus a patient that walks in that says now i've been feeling some discomfort at work and i've noticed i've been a bit more irritable i want to work through this obviously the one that's more urgent will require a different intervention so make sure that you're stabilized that you're fine that we can debrief that we can um do this trauma debriefing we can make sure that you're safe we can alert family if we need to so in that regard your initial session would be a lot more reactive so i need to make sure that you're okay in general though if it's a i'm depressed or i'm suffering one struggling with these things i want to work through this process it's usually that inquiry so getting background information getting to know what your life is about um and it includes everything from well the way that i work i include everything from your history your family history your medical history your psychiatric history what medications you're on your schooling history your family your relationships your wife your husband your kids um are you using substances when did this when did you notice this problem starting um for how long has it been there and it may seem over inclusive but for me if i don't fully understand all of these components that are contributing to you feeling this way i can't fix something or help you to fix something that we don't know what's broken in in a very late later we don't fix but essentially we we can't address something and we don't know what we've addressed mm, yeah i think that makes sense and i think it's it's i mean it correlates with you know my experience of how the therapeutic process works as well you know in mm-hmm. terms of that that's why always when you go to you know a medical practitioner they always or healthcare practitioner they always ask you to fill out that form with everything in it you know from yeah. birth <laughs> so i think yeah that kind of makes sense um in terms of your your question regarding how long would it take um it also depends if it's an emergency or not like what your intention is what you're there for um but also the modality of therapy 
So, for example, a solutions-focused um, therapist may be a lot quicker. Um, like a, a brief solutions-focused therapy can be anything from one to three sessions. Um, if you want to do a psychodynamic sort of route, it that usually spans several months. And it also depends, you know, am I here just to feel better for the day? Or as I uncover things, I realize I have these blind spots, there's these things that I want to work on, and I want to continue that process. Hmm. Then yeah. it would be a lot more drawn out. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, and Viren, in terms of resources, um, or so, so someone listen to this podcast or watch the video, and they say, "Wow, I really like this," and I think you know, I'd probably like to learn more. You know, before going and seeing Viren for a session or another therapist. But are there any resources? And I'm probably going to ask this in two ways as well, because as practitioners, obviously, they listen to it as well. Is anything from a healthcare practitioner point of view that you would point them to from a resources perspective and then from a loved ones or someone that's going through something like this like a major depressive disorder well they're probably not going to be looking at resources but you know if they on that early path maybe and they were looking for resources is there anything that you would point them to yeah so in terms of um i, I like to always divide them into the tech savvy and the not so tech savvy. Okay. Um, so the ones that are not so tech savvy actually prefer hard books and hard manuals. Um, for whatever reason, I, I prefer a little bit of both, but um, I actually wrote down the name here of two books um, that I found quite useful. So one is by Dorothy Rowe. Uh, it's called The Way Out of Your Prison. And there's another one by Paul Gilbert called The Compassionate Mind. Okay. So if you're looking for books, those are really good reads um, that speaks about this whole depressive sort of picture. Um, going on to the more tech-savvy um, online resources, I found apps or these three or four apps um, that I'm going to mention, really useful, both for people that are going through depression or a depressive episode or feeling just a little bit low, as well as for families of them to maybe understand. Um, the one is called Insight Timer. Mm, I know that one. Um, do you know that one? Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, it's really <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, there's one called Panda, P-A-N-D-A. Okay. Yeah. There's Hey Happy. Okay. And there's one called Calm. Okay. Yeah. I know that one too. Why, why I like the apps is, yes, you can get a ton of information online. Um, just make sure that those sites are credible. So not things like Wikipedia and people's blogs, um, unless it is a healthcare practitioner that is stating that I'm a healthcare practitioner, these are my credentials, and this is the focus of this blog. If it's your lay people, yes, it's helpful maybe to resonate with them, but I think if you need information, like factual information, it's better to stick to more credible sources. So mm -hmm. your site like SADAC and Mayo Clinic and things like that. 
Um, the other place that I found quite useful links are things like your podcasts, where there are actually credible people <laughs> on this. Mm -hmm. um, and also on YouTube, there's becoming an increasingly scary amount of resources. Um, there's one that I used literally this morning. Um, it's called I Had a Black Dog. Okay. And I was actually using it with one of my with one of my patients at the hospital. And it's a short YouTube clip, but it's almost this metaphor for depression that helps people understand either the person suffering with depression or families. It creates such a nice analogy and such a nice visual representation of what this is and what it feels like without a lot of that medical jargon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's almost my like wish list as well. It's like, you know, as kids, I know with our kids, I mean, like, you know, there would be like sensitive topics and they would do it in a story kind of form, you know, and I think if you could do that with each one of the mental illness, you know, I think that would be, you know, that would be pretty interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like what you said now, but that's... Um, I think where we lose a lot of people is also when we try and use too much of the medical jargon and the medical language. And yes, you come across sounding very smart and very articulate, but does the person actually fully understand what you mean? Mm. And they're not going to sit there and say, sorry, doctor, I don't understand what you said. 99% mm. of the time, patients and parents sit there. Yes. Did you understand? Yes. Mm -hmm. And when I sit with them, I ask them, okay, what did you understand by it? And they cannot tell you anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I hear you. And, and I think also with, you know, with the documents you get, you know, if you ever get a report or you get even an invoice and you see this ICD-10 code, I mean, you don't even know what that means, you know, and yes. most people just accept it. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about that. I, I, see, I saw it with, you know, around yes. COVID and insurance policies, you know, and, and people were asking, you know, so when last did you see a psychologist as an example? You know, and this could, could be a different topic as well. But, you know, and, and people don't understand, you know, some of that stuff that's happening. But they, as you said, they're almost too scared or too maybe proud sometimes, you know, of asking. Because yes, yeah. it's, um, you know, it seems like they, you know, they, they're silly or stupid, you know, if they ask it. But it's actually not. It's like we don't know it. It's not like we study that stuff. Um, so you should actually ask for it because it's like you. It's your stuff. Um, Exactly. And it has a direct impact on your life. It's going to be on your medical records. So you have this label on you, but you have no idea what it means. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the scary part. Um, I had two other ones that came up, you know, while we were talking and I thought I must ask you about these as well is from your experience, do you work with in a multidisciplinary setup? And the reason I'm asking that is, I mean, do you find that you work with certain types of practitioners like, uh, when you're dealing with someone with a major depressive disorder? I'm assuming like a psychiatrist would come up quite highly on that list, but is there anyone else? Or would a psychiatrist even be in that list? Because we didn't speak of a medication. I know psychologists can't prescribe, but you know, obviously if your patient is, you know, having that, they're on some type of medication maybe. Yes, yeah. So currently um, the MDT or the, the multidisciplinary team that I work with the default team is a psychiatrist, nursing staff, 
um, an occupational therapist, um, social worker, um, and the school uh, is like an educator. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean that every single person must be involved. Um, sometimes in my in private practice, it's sufficient just to see the psychologist. Uh, it may not be that severe. But I think what's important is knowing what options are available in terms of what other professions are there that can best assist. We like to think we're superheroes and we can do every single thing, but we can't. So even with medication, yes, we don't, we cannot prescribe medication, but we need to know, okay, if it's becoming this severe, medication will help to stabilize the patient's mood, and then we can work more deeply. So quite often when it is more severe, um, psychiatry is involved. Um, at the hospital, it depends on the situation, but social work sometimes becomes involved purely because there may be social factors that influence your mood. So maybe you're in an abusive home um, where there's partner violence, there's um, child abuse, there's child neglect, um, or just a neighborhood that is riddled with gang violence and things like that. So all of those things will impact your mood. You're going to feel stressed out. You're going to feel uh, a little bit depressed. So if social work needs to intervene to protect the person or to change that situation, um, obviously within their scope, um, they sometimes become involved. Um, occupational therapy, um, in all honesty, it's something that I've only started becoming aware of when I started working at the hospital. It wasn't something that was as popular. Um, so with OT, they look at these, how a person functions, can they perform tasks of everyday living? So things like making a meal, taking care of themselves. And we often underestimate the inability to do that and the impact it can have on our mental health. So things we take for granted, like being able to wake up and brush our teeth and get ready and, and go out, someone that's not able to function properly, that can't problem solve, that can't sustain themselves, will likely leave them feeling inferior or feeling quite bad about themselves. I'm now burdening someone else. So OT comes in with all of their functional abilities, testing their functional tasks, um, looking at their perceptions, do they have any um, sensory um, deficits, you know, are they overstimulated by things? Are they understimulated? Do they need something else? So quite a quite a cool profession as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I love OTs. <laughs> I love how tangible they are. You know, like, and I, again, I'm with you. Um, I I didn't know what an OT does until we started working with OK practitioners, and uh, yes. yeah, I have a lot of respect for them in terms of what they do. Um, and then my last one was more ethics related and I, and I kind of got the idea as we were talking, you know, when you mentioned about containing someone while you're in this, on the Zoom session or something like that, do you, is there any ethics related um, considerations, you know, with working, you know, with, with people with a major depressive disorder? 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, obviously the basics are normal, you know, like privacy and, you know, keeping the therapeutic space, you know, safe mm. and all of those things. But have you come across anything around that? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it, it ties in these, this sort of sticky ground between confidentiality. So when can we disclose information? What now becomes not private, not confidential, where we have to disclose? Um, so it's a sticky ground between that and then you start introducing minors into that. So people under the age of 18 or 16 or 14. So there's a whole lot of sticky ground with that because there's so many, so there's law. So uh, the law of our country says one thing and then Children's Act says something else. And then the HPCSA, which is our governing body will have their own views on things. So whenever you have these um, dilemmas, you've got to be so careful on how you maneuver and what you do. So you've almost got to justify every step of, I broke confidentiality because of this. So a simple thing like the HPCSA has a Form 22, um, which is the reporting of um, physical, sexual, psychological um, abuse, um, specifically with minors, so with kids. And where that comes into play is that as soon as it's reported to you, if you're the first person, you've got to fill out that form and you've got to submit it. And then if the child says, no, but actually the perpetrator is my dad and I don't want to say anything because I'm going to be kicked out of the house. Your instinct tells you you've got to do one thing. The law tells you you've got to do something else. Friends will tell you you do something else. And I think that's a, an ethical dilemma that I still seek clarity on even until today. So I'm always checking with our social worker. I'm always checking with our peers. You know, guys, I've got this case. What do we do? Or what should I be doing? So mm. I think if anything, ethics, especially with that, has to be at the forefront all the time. Mm. I'm so glad I asked that question. I mean, I didn't think, you know, of it. I mean, I, I would, you know, cringe to be able or be, I would, it's not an easy position to be in. But yeah, that's mm. that's interesting. Do you find any any particular strategies? I, I like the MDT strategies, as in bouncing it off your peers, maybe even off your board. You know, I think each one of the you know mm. the practitioners have their own board, and especially maybe a board with private practitioners, maybe uh, or or practitioners in private practice, maybe. Um, mm. Do you find any strategies that work really well for you? Uh yes. So. The most effective strategy is the preemptive strategy, which is before, um, or not before, but at the start of our session, I always tell them, this is what we do. This is private and confidential. This is what's not private and confidential. So if these things happen, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It's not because I don't like you or because I feel like doing it. It's because according to the law or according to my governing body, I'm required legally to do these things. So I've often found that when I present it as that, as very factual as, you know, according to law, my hands are tied, 
this is what's going to happen. It's a lot easier. So if it does come up later on, it's not a new thing. Um, what becomes difficult is if you don't mention it, and then they mention something that requires you to break confidentiality. And then they say, but I told you it's in confidence. And so whether you like it or not, it's been said, I can't, I can't have you take it back. Mm-hmm. Well, working preemptively is quite important. Um, peer supervision or having your own supervision, your own supervisor, um, is very, very useful. Someone who has had more experience in the field. Um, like I said, with the MDT, um, I was, I'm quite lucky. <clears throat> Our social worker is quite versed in all of this. So I'm often running to her with, with each and every case, especially when it's with kids. Um, and then my default um, is also in private practice. We've got to have, you've not got to have, but it is highly, highly, highly recommended that you have um, an insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so professional indemnity. Mm-hmm. Well, with a lot of these professional indemnities, you're allowed to check in with them. So you can email them, call them, and tell them I have this case. I'm not sure what to do. Please can someone assist me? And then they have their team of professionals that will advise you, okay, you've got to do this, or you've got to use this indemnity form. Mm-hmm. I actually really like that. I actually forgot about that. Uh, but I know my wife used that, you know, in a few cases. And I think I think that's something mm-hmm. I've not heard many practitioners mention. But yeah, that is actually true. So as part of, you know, the, I think, you know, she had MPS at one stage, but there's various other mm-hmm. ones I think you can probably get. Yeah. But, you know, if you have that cover, they have a team of like legal of attorneys that actually mm-hmm. know healthcare practitioner law and, you yeah. know, they can advise you in the best way. I think, yeah, that's a forgotten resource. Thanks so much for mentioning that. But that's actually a really good one. Um, yeah, let's leave it there. I did a last, last question, which is, uh, I know, obviously, we try to, you know, prepare for the session, you know, from a team point of view. Obviously, we yeah. spoke a little bit before, you know, an email. But is there anything that you thought I should have asked you around major depressive disorder that, that I didn't? I think you covered, I think you've covered most of it. Um, yeah, I, I just think in terms of um, resources as well, again, speaking to this whole online platform and this whole digital era, it's it's extremely useful. Um, and I know we touched on a little bit of the negative aspects of it. You know, anything can have negative implications. It just mm-hmm. depends on how you use it. But I think this whole online platform has become so useful in breaking down stereotypes, in accessing um, resources. So whether it's resources in terms of just readings and understandings, um, or whether it's online groups. And what I particularly like about it, and which I wish more people can get into and have more sort of awareness into, is this online space is quite a nice space where you want to either voice yourself very vocally and connect with people so you don't feel like you're isolated and going through this alone. With that, I've come across so many groups, like these support groups, where people find these commonalities. You know, I'm struggling with this as well. I'm struggling with that as well. Where they've almost 
joined together and built up this thing of these check-in groups. Um, a very random example is there's an online an online server, Discord, mm. where there's a lot of gamers that will mm. hop up there and and do their thing. So while they're gaming, they'll be talking to each other. Mm. And I found on that you can create these separate chat rooms. And the one, I don't even think they did it deliberately, but it ended up being this check-in, like a coffee room. Mm. And I've watched it over like a couple of months and it's developed from this coffee room to almost this, guys, I'm having a really crap day. Or oh, guys, I just need to come and talk to someone. I don't know anybody here. Like I don't know you by face. So they almost feel a lot safer. Mm. I can disclose no one's going to judge me. That is actually... So, yeah, yeah with cool. all these online spaces, there's these rooms. If you don't feel like, you know, I'm going to feel victimized, they're going to know where I stay, where I work. You can go on completely anonymously. You can link together. You can debrief. You can talk your heart out. And there's so much less stigma attached to that. Hmm. I, I never ever thought of it like that. But we use Discord as a, you know, within the company when we we're actually doing... I set up this, mm-hmm. you know, like team sessions where we did gaming together, and that was exactly the the use case. But I actually can see that, eh? I think you know we've got this other client, and he started this group like psychoanalysis and parenting or something, and he said it absolutely blew up. You know, it's like it was amazing how many like like practitioners and parents were on that group, and just you know by virtue of the topic, you know, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, I yeah. think that's a forgotten resource, you know, with the internet is that you can find this pockets of community and you tie yeah. into that community, uh, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And it's it's so nice that you don't have to waste transport money driving yeah. to driving back. You yeah. don't have to worry about damn it, am I gonna be in this waiting room and someone's gonna walk out and see me and recognize mm. me? Or someone's mm. gonna ask me, hey, where are you going to? Are you going mm. for a session? Are you just your psychologist? Mm. You can literally yeah. sit in the comfort of your home. It's just your data that you log on with, and you can have similar experience. You mm. can connect, you can share, you can be part of. Mm. Yeah. I love this conversation. I love everything about it. And as as usual, I mean, I, you know, I said we were on a break for a bit, but it's amazing how, how quickly time goes by. And I think, Viren, I mean, you definitely brought your A game. There was a, a huge <laughs> amount of nuggets of information there that I would love to unpack, you know, in other discussions. But thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for your time and, and everything that you do. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having the space, for creating the space. And once again, for creating this resource for everybody. Um, it's absolutely amazing that you can have this. So well done to you as well. You don't have to be these superheroes and capes to make changes. <laughs> thanks so much for saying that. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.